What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Stocks have turned higher on the day, but we're still facing losses this week. And the Fed's next decision on rate hikes is coming in just a couple of days. Can they still engineer a soft landing, or is a recession unavoidable? We'll debate. And it's game on for Microsoft in its battle against the FTC. What the government's tougher stance means for the future of M&A. Plus, we're continuing to look at other ways to invest, turn a profit, and maybe have some fun along the way. Today, we focus on investing in wine and whiskey. You won't want to miss it. But let's take a quick look first at how stocks are trading this hour. And as we mentioned, we started turning higher, but the blue chips are struggling. And frankly, we've just been under more pressure since that PPI report this morning. The Dow's down 42 right now. The S&P's up one point and the Nasdaq is up about 20. The only sector on pace for weekly gains is utilities. Never a good sign. Also a rates trade, and we've seen some more upward pressure on rates just today. The worst performers are energy, given that collapse in oil prices we've been highlighting, and communication services. Some big earnings movers to mention as well. Broadcom jumping on better-than-expected results. It's up 3.5%. They had an upbeat outlook. DocuSign up 15% on solid results and stronger-than-expected billings. Meantime, though, Lululemon, we were singing its praises yesterday, but a weak outlook for the fourth quarter today has the stock tumbling 12 and a half percent. Elsewhere, Netflix in the spotlight after getting an upgrade to overweight at Wells Fargo. Wells is saying their ad-supported tier could lead to a strong 2023. It's got the stock up 5 percent. So let's take a look back at the data this week, which actually had a lot of bright points, but it seems like even the good news can be treated as bad news these days. So we started with the services PMI coming in stronger than expected on Monday. Uh, that sparked a sell-off, actually, as it kept more Fed tightening on the table. Unit labor costs a little softer than expected. That was a good thing for markets. It implies that wages could be softening, though, and that's uh, that's never really something you like to see. So the services PMI we'll put over here mostly in the good category. Then today, some doubly good news on the consumer front this morning. You had sentiment rising three points, and this one's been a real sticking spot, the consumer. But all of a sudden today, a three-point jump in sentiment. We'll take it. It's not amazing, but it's something. Significantly for the Fed as well, inflation expectations on a one-year horizon, those moderated, and that will take some pressure off. Unfortunately, we still reeling from that hotter-than-expected PPI report. This one's definitely going in the bad category. The monthly jump twice as bad as expected, up four-tenths. The one-year surge, 8.5%. That sent yields back upwards and renewed pressure on stocks. And that brings us to today's big debate. Can the Fed still engineer a soft landing for the U.S. economy or not? Chris Thornburg is founding partner of Beacon Economics. He thinks the Fed can still avoid a sharp downturn. Jay Bryson is chief economist at Wells Fargo Corporate and Investment Bank, and he expects more of a hard fall into recession. Welcome to both of you. Chris, we'll start with you. And do you see soft landing only if the Fed starts to pull things back here? 
Uh, well, listen, if the Fed raises the federal funds rate to 12 percent, we can all agree we're going to have a recession, right? Um, now, I do think the Fed's going to start backing off. We know they weigh unemployment far more heavily than inflation when it comes to their decisions. They're very worried about overdoing it when it comes to the labor markets, and they'll probably start to back off as a result of that. But with that in mind, of course, the big question you're asking about is what about this recession we're supposedly about to have? You know, it's intriguing. That's been a watchword for the entire year. And my question has always been, why? Why do you think we're going to have a recession? Um, inflation, to be clear, is not hurting consumers. It's being pushed by excessive consumer demand. And consumer demand has been overheated by the massive amount of stimulus the government unnecessarily put into the economy over the course of the pandemic. Households are still sitting on trillions of dollars in cash, $5 trillion holdings as of this morning, five times what it was pre-pandemic. And that will be enough to push the economy through the troubles from interest rate sectors and sensitive sectors like housing. Um, so I just don't see a recession on the basis of strong consumer spending. Yeah, the consumer piece of this is, is hopefully a stalwart. Jay, we turn to you, though. Um, you're expecting more of a hard fall here. Why is that? Well, it comes down to inflation, Kelly. I mean, inflation is having two issues right now. The first is it is eroding real disposable income. You know, in October, year over year, real disposable income was up or down 3%. At the same time, real spending was up 2% over that period of time. So we're seeing the consumer, the household saving rate is essentially at an all-time low right now. Credit card debt is going up. And so the fundamentals of the consumer are starting to weaken. And then you throw on top of that the fact that the Fed's not done. Um, the inflation, in my, our view, is their number one priority right now. And so the, the um, combination of weaker consumer and higher interest rates, I think, leads to a modest recession next year. It's curious that you guys differ pretty strongly on the consumer. Chris, why aren't you more concerned about those signs of weakening that Jay's picking up on? Well, uh, Jay's talking about income and I'm talking about wealth. That's the primary difference here. Jay is referring to some of the ebbs and flows over the course of the last year, which I, I don't disagree with. But again, what is driving consumer spending is not income. It's the wealth numbers, which are up fantastically. Again, we just got the third quarter flow of fund number. My favorite number on there is cash on hand. Prior to the pandemic, all households were hanging on to about a trillion dollars in cash liquidity. Right now, $5 trillion of cash liquidity. That's a phenomenal amount of cash burning a hole in, in, in consumers' pockets. And that's going to continue to keep consumer spending up and running right through this problem. Indeed, I'm going to start worrying when inflation does slow down because slowing inflation means a weaker consumer. And that in turn suggests that my primary, shall we say, driver of the economy next year may not be showing up. But boy, we're not seeing any of that now. Let me be clear about that, Chris. Why would inflation weaken the consumer? Do you mean because it would deflate, you know, home price, house price wealth, for instance, something like no, that? No, no, because if, if inflation starts cooling off, that's a sign that consumer demand is indeed starting to back off. It's, it's not. Um, whether you're looking at some of the Black Friday sales or the fact that auto lots are still largely empty, uh, the fact that Vegas revenues in, in the Vegas casinos right now are 30 percent higher than they have ever been before without global tourists showing up. Again, sign after sign suggests just how strong consumers consumers are. Consumers don't care about the federal funds rate. For the most part, they're not exposed to the big increase in interest rates because most of their debt is in 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. Um, for the consumers, this is more noise than reality, and they will, again, be, the, be able to push us through all the problems we're almost assuredly going to continue to see in asset markets as a result of rising rates. Let me put it just slightly differently. 
I think there's going to be a Wall Street on, I'm saying there's going to be a recession in Wall Street, but not on Main Street. And when it comes to GDP, Main Street dominates. Jay, what do you think, especially about the difference between the income and wealth of consumers right now? Yeah, sure. If you look at, um, you know, balance sheets of consumers, as Chris is pointing out, uh, they're very, very strong right now. But I guess what I would say to that is if consumers continue to spend, if the economy doesn't slow down, then you're going to keep the unemployment rate very, very low. You're going to keep wage growth extremely high. Right now, average hourly earnings on a year-over-year basis are running about 5%. And that's just not consistent with a inflation rate of roughly 2% where the Fed wants to get us to. And so if consumers Consumers continue to power through this. If the, the labor market doesn't uh, continue, doesn't start to weaken, wage growth is going to remain very, very high. That's going to keep inflationary pressures higher, and that's where the Fed will continue to raise rates. Now, are they going to go to 12 percent? Um, as you know, Chris alluded to earlier, no, certainly not. But you know, we're in restrictive territory now, and, and the further we go, the more it's going to weigh on things like manufacturing production and on housing, etc., which then does lead to job losses, and then that does affect consumer spending. I guess, Chris, the last quick thing I'd say is that your more upbeat outlook for the economy to me would be worse news if it means that the Fed ought to keep tightening to avoid those wage pressures that Jay's talking about. So even if you're right about the fundamentals, wouldn't that make you longer term concerned that we're going to end up in a deeper recession because they have to react to that? Well, again, that all depends on what the Fed decides to do. And I appreciate uh, what Jay just said for sure. But again, I don't actually think the Fed is as worried about inflation as they pretend. Um, their primary focus is on equity, inequality, labor markets. They love tight labor markets. They love the fact that it's benefiting low-income workers. Um, and as a result of that, I just don't think they're going to be quite as aggressive hmm. about handling this as, as Jay does. So I think they're going to back off, if nothing else, just on the basis of these uh, very bearish headlines. Uh, my guess is they probably won't peak anywhere past 5%. All right, we'll leave it there. Great discussion, guys. Thank you both very much. Chris Thornburg and Jay Bryson, and we'll hear from the other Jay Powell uh, next Wednesday with that Fed decision. Turning now to the talk of the tech and media worlds, the FTC suing to block Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard. But both players seem confident their deal will prevail. Steve Kovac is here with Microsoft's strategy to push the deal through. And Kayla Tausche is in Washington to detail the rough road the Biden administration has had in fighting these mergers. Steve, let's start with you. Yeah, sure thing, Kelly. So, look, here's the... FTC's case against this Microsoft deal. The suit lays out a history of Microsoft's gaming acquisitions, alleging Microsoft has a pattern of buying game publishers to make their games exclusive on Microsoft platforms. The FTC also makes a lot of other claims about Microsoft's market power. First up, it claims Nintendo isn't even in the same class as Microsoft and Sony because they make more expensive and powerful game consoles. It also claims that cloud gaming, which is still in its infancy, by the way, could become more relevant at some point in the future, and this acquisition would give Microsoft the unfair advantage over Sony. Now, so far, the FTC hasn't really shown much evidence proving these theories. Nintendo, for example, actually is a bigger market sharing consoles than Microsoft. As for the exclusive question, Microsoft has offered to put Call of Duty on rival platforms for 10 years and said it's even willing to make that enforceable by the courts if this deal goes through. Meanwhile, Microsoft President Brad Smith making it clear the company is going to fight this in court, saying in a statement, Microsoft tried to, quote, give peace a chance by offering concessions to the FTC earlier this week. But it now sounds like, Kelly, no more peace. Microsoft's ready for war. 
I mean, one of the things that I guess rivals are pointing to is that Microsoft has uh, held things for itself in the past. Right. So do you think that, that people are right to sense in some ways that anything they're trying to do by offering Call of Duty uh, to other platforms right now is more of a charm offensive than it is a real signal of what their long-term it, intentions It could be, because they do have a, a point there, because they have, the, especially with this company they bought called ZeniMax, they have put those exclusively, or some of those main titles coming out exclusively on their platforms. But Call of Duty is a different animal altogether. Call of Duty makes so much more of its money outside of Microsoft's platforms. So you can see it would be financially irresponsible for them to yank it off their rivals' platforms hmm. because they'd be losing money. And I'd also point to Minecraft. They bought Minecraft within the last decade or so. It's still everywhere. You can play it on your phone. You can play it on your laptop. You can play it on PlayStation, hmm. anything. So certain games, if it makes sense, Microsoft has also shown they're willing to keep it platform agnostic. And you can also look at what Microsoft has done just on the phone. You know, at first they tried to fight Apple and, you know, make their own phone system. But now it's you can get tons of Microsoft apps on your Mac, on your iPhone. It, they, they are platform agnostic in a lot of ways, too. Uh, man, I'm thinking if you're making the case and I'm the judge, this is a tough one. I can see, yeah. both, you know, there's pre precedence for both uh, outcomes here. Steve, thanks. Let's thanks. turn to Kayla now. The Biden administration not backing down from taking companies to court, even though their track record so far hasn't actually been that great. Kayla Tausche in D.C. with those details. Kayla. Kelly, the Biden administration pledged an aggressive approach in challenging mergers, both with direct competitors and with suppliers, these so-called vertical deals like Microsoft and Activision. But in recent weeks, U.S. courts have not been buying those arguments, disagreeing with antitrust agencies' attempts to block acquisitions by Illumina, United Healthcare, U.S. Sugar, and Booz Allen Hamilton. And despite a win in blocking a merger between publishing houses Penguin and Simon and & Schuster, antitrust attorneys and their corporate clients are now emboldened to stay the course. But the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice are unfazed. The top DOJ antitrust official Jonathan Cantor told Congress in September that improvements to antitrust enforcement will not happen if the antitrust division is unwilling to challenge aggressively anti-competitive conduct and unlawful market consolidation. Cantor says he remains committed to bringing difficult cases. And Lena Khan, the FTC commissioner, praised as successes the six deals where the specter of litigation alone caused them to abandon the deals, notably Lockheed Martin's bid for Aerojet and NVIDIA's acquisition of Arm Holdings. That's not likely to happen here. The government has already remarked on the sheer volume of resources Microsoft could devote to this fight. And Activision CEO Bobby Kotick told employees yesterday he's confident the deal will close. Kelly? You know, we also heard from some experts saying the government doesn't have unlimited talent and resources when it comes to litigating these cases. This one being the biggest and most significant, you think would probably get the best resources. But, you know, how much of a how much can they tap in here? How much do they have in terms of financial resources, uh, the legal muscle to throw at this and all the rest of it? Well, certainly nothing compared to what Microsoft has, not only in-house, but also uh, what Microsoft is willing to bring on in terms of external resources and outside law firms and experts and consulting firms to crunch their own numbers to make their case against the government. But that doesn't really matter to the FTC here because its playbook so far has been to challenge as many cases as they possibly can where they see 
any inkling of a concern there, of course, rooted uh, in the law. They did make an argument for why they wanted to challenge this. Uh, but then in hopes that, you know, even just the specter of litigation, as we were just mentioning, causes the companies to walk away. And whether those string of recent setbacks now causes companies to rethink that and be even bolder in their strategy remains to be seen. But this Microsoft Activision case is going to be an important precedent, both for these agencies and also for the companies who are fighting them. It's fascinating. I'm curious what you think about how it's affecting the deal-making environment, because you, if you start getting the sense that the government is going to be on the losing side here, then it should almost encourage people to start uh, pursuing a lot of M&A, because if they don't, then their competitors are going to get a leg up on them. You know, there's, there's kind of this sense of if they're going to prevail in the long run, maybe they have to go for it now, or, or maybe it just favors the larger companies with the most resources who can prevail here, while the smaller ones say maybe we you know, can't take those risks. Well, it's hard to say exactly, Kelly, you know, how how active companies will be in M&A right now, strictly out of antitrust considerations, because certainly the way that the stock market has traded in the last several months, I mean, you could make a valuation argument that companies are going to start doing more deals. But I think it is notable that there was a sort of chilling effect in the early days of the Biden administration in the early years um, of Khan and Cantor being atop those divisions uh, because they wanted to see how they played out. They wanted to see how the courts reacted. Uh, but certainly, Kelly, we should also note it's not just here in the U.S. because even when the U.S. agencies have lost in court, the European Union has also not been shy about bringing its own challenges to some of these deals. Too. That's absolutely right. I think there's 16 jurisdictions where even just the Microsoft Activision deal has to go through. Kayla, for now, thanks. We appreciate it. Kayla Tausche in Washington. Coming up, Chinese stocks have been jumping, but it's not all good news out of China this week. We'll look at the risks building there next. Plus, it's not all about the Fed. One manager sees three separate tailwinds for next year's earnings, and she says the market is overlooking them. What they are and why they matter ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor.
Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a big week for China and for Chinese investors. Let's start with the equities. The Chinese Internet ETF, the K-Web, up 6%. The large cap ETF up 3%. And the Hang Seng also up 6%. In terms of the data, exports fell at the steepest pace in more than two years in November. PPI, CPI, better expected that, uh, better than expected, though. And finally, the driving force is policy. The country is finally starting to loosen its COVID restrictions. Hong Kong eased quarantine and testing rules. People can now quarantine at home with mild cases. Isolation periods were reduced and Foxconn lifted some of its COVID restrictions. Let's bring in Marco Papage for more here. He's partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. Marco, what do you think uh, the takeaway is for investors here when it comes to China? Well, this is one of those moments when we as investors, Kelly, have to be watching where the puck is going, not where it is. Uh, the steep decline in exports has been really expected for 12 months. Western consumers are moving away from goods to services. There is also, of course, tightening by the Fed and other central banks. So exports were always going to weaken for China. Chinese policymakers know that, and they've been extremely aggressive post the October Congress in terms of having these 180-degree pivots, not just on zero-COVID policy, but also real estate, on PBOC's liquidity injections, and on fiscal policy. So this is extremely bullish setup for China. Extremely bullish setup for China, you see? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of a trade for the next six months, you know, Chinese stocks could very well be the best performers in the world. You're talking about a country that was, you know, near recession or effectively in a recession, uh, stimulating on, on all cylinders. And it's really been a dramatic turn. And again, most of us are focusing on zero COVID because it's interesting. It, it, it's a topic that everybody understands. But the PBOC has restarted its uh, pledged lending su uh, support facility, the PSL facility, which it has basically been dormant for the past three years. And it's uh, increased by a massive amount over the last two months uh, since October. So, you know, they are clearly turning the ship around at a much faster pace than anybody has expected. That's fascinating. I wonder if that means then uh, people who are throwing in the towel on the energy, on the oil trade, need to think twice about that. Because can you get in a situation where Chinese stocks perform and the economy, what it sounds like you're saying, is rebounding, and that doesn't mean that we have upward pressure on oil pl uh, prices globally? So I think that that's one of the takeaways. You know, you have to start looking for uh, high beta plays to China. Uh, commodities definitely are one of them. Oil prices could face more downside over the next couple of weeks, maybe months, as the median investor focuses on recession risks. Uh, but I agree with you. I think what you're having here is a setup very similar to January of 2016, when you had the Shanghai Accord and the pivot by Janet Yellen, 10 months of no Fed rate hikes. And then you had China uh, do its stimulus through the shantytown redevelopment uh, projects. So that was a very very surprising moment as well for investors and that allowed commodities to rally and emerging markets to rally with it and i think we're setting up for a very similar replay of that january 2016 moment that's fascinating and certainly not what is in most people's consensus right now marco let me ask you one more kind of question about the region before i move on but what about the impact of the semiconductor ban so i think that that's been uh, overblown massively i mean the united states administration the october 7 ban uh, they had to effectively bribe allies with a 12-month worth of gorging on Chinese demand, which is going to skyrocket because China now has this window to purchase every piece of CapEx machinery they can. Hmm. And that's a sign of weakness to me. Uh, it, it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign that Washington, D.C. is trying to get its uh, allies on board with really 
an order that impacts only a sliver of China's demand for semiconductors. So if this is how much the U.S. has to work uh, on to get allies on board with something very simple, it tells me that this is the end of the uh, U.S. Commerce Department focus on semiconductors. But there will be other things. There'll be other headwinds. There'll be other news headlines. You know, we expect something on public markets as well over the next 12 months. So that could create a dip in Chinese stocks, 10, 20 percent, when uh, some new order comes out of D.C. about public equities and investing in China in privates and publics. But what I would say about that is that most large institutional investors domiciled in North America have already given up on their allocation to China. And there'll be plenty of non-North American, non-Western institutional investors who will be ready to scoop up Chinese equities, which may become very similar to tobacco stocks or other sin premium um, hmm. sectors. Right. And we've seen the, the outperformance there, although China's been a, a tougher one over the past decade or so. Let me just ask you one broad question here, because I believe this is the last time I'll see you before the Fed meeting. What are you telling people? I mean, when you're your holiday party cocktail chat, when people say, OK, come on, Marco, is the Fed done here? Are they going to have to cut rates next or are, are they hiking, you know, five, five and a half percent? What would you say? Well, you know, Kelly, we just had our holiday party. And so, you know, I'm, I'm struggling in this interview already. And you're putting me on the spot. And I'll tell you this. Um, every time I say what Jay Powell's going to do, I think he watches your show and says, you know what, I'm going to prove Marco wrong. Um, so I, I'm not really sure. I think that, you know, 50 basis points and then next year, maybe 25 a couple of times. But here's what I would say. Let's not focus on QE versus QT, the, you know, basis point number. What we should be focusing on is what is truly a Fed pivot. It's not about what they do. It's the effect they have on the real yield. Real yield was shot out of a cannon in 2022. That was the trade of the year. You True. just had a steep appreciation of real yields. If the real yield flattens out, if it comes down, that is the Fed pivot. So the best thing to watch kind of is, is the 10-year tips yield, something like that, if you want to know where stocks are going? I would look at two-year two -year real two -year. yields, and okay. I think that they will engineer a flattening of those uh, to your real yields. In other words, the delta of the appreciation is going to flatten out, and that will be your pivot. And that makes you a buyer of stocks, basically? Absolutely. And I said this on your show three months ago. I mean, once CPI peaks, equities bottom. All That's right. so far held true, but we'll see. And again, I hope Jay Powell is not watching this. <laughs> Don't we all, if we want that outcome. Marco, thank you. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Marco Papage with Clock Tower. On deck, investing in stocks and bonds is so 2022. Ahead, we'll tell you why you should be looking at wine and whiskey as your next investment. Plus, one market strategist says there's a glass half full scenario out there that isn't being appreciated by the market. She'll break down what it is and how to play it. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back, everybody. Markets are back in the red this afternoon. Moments ago, the Dow was positive, but we're now seeing it down 78 points with the S&P down four, the Nasdaq also down four this hour. Actually, I should say it was the Nasdaq positive earlier that has now given up its gains and turned negative. Some of the movers this hour we're watching, Bath & Body Works, higher after Dan Loeb's third point disclosed it's upping its stake from 3.5% to over 6 Now, the shares are only up 1% right now. Loeb just told our Scott Wapner that he has several issues with the company, including its execution, its shareholder communications, and its capital allocation strategy. Now, Bath & Body Works tells CNBC they will continue to take actions they think are in the best interests of the company and their shareholders. Uh, but this, these shares are down almost 40% this year, trading around $42 with this about 1% pop today. Let's get to Kate Rooney now for a CNBC News update. Kate? Hi there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Nexium cult leader Keith Ranieri has lost an appeal and will continue to serve a 120-year sentence. Ranieri was convicted on charges including sex trafficking and sexual exploitation of a child. The appeals court also affirmed the seven-year sentence of Claire Bronfman, that's the Seagram's heiress, who was also involved with that group. Newly independent Senator Kirsten Sinema will retain her committee assignment. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says Sinema told him she'd be leaving the Democratic Party yesterday and asked to keep her assignments, which he has agreed to do. And an international conservation group has added 700 more species to the list of those threatened with its extinction. Among those is the dugong, a relative of the manatee that lives in the Western Pacific Ocean. The list now includes more than 150,000 species approaching extinction. The dugong, maybe a favorite new sea mammal there, Kelly. Back to you. I'm, you know, I, it's just amazing to me, thinking of the cinema news, Kate, here we were all obsessing about the outcome of that Georgia runoff. Little did we know just a day later that the Senate numbers would be thrown up in the air for a different reason. All of a something, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kate, thank you. Kate uh, Rooney. Coming up, we've talked a lot about the problems that are forming in the commercial real estate sector, but with those problems come opportunities. Yes, we'll discuss them when the exchange is back in just a minute. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Yields are inching higher again after that hotter-than-expected PPI report. And there's more econ data on deck next week, along, of course, with the Fed's decision on rates. That's the biggie. We're all wondering where do rates go from here. And Dom Chu has a look at what's happened since the last meeting, Dom. November 2nd. That was the last time when we got that 75 basis point or three-quarters of 1% hike. So in that time frame, since we've seen that move, we've seen some nice highs all the way up to just around kind of that four and a quarter mark. Remember, at the highs of the year, it was closer to 4.33%. And now that we've kind of fell, fallen off since then, so again, four and a quarter, it was about 4.06 right after around that Fed meeting on November 2nd, and now it's at 3.56%. So again, over the course of the last year, Kelly, it has gone from 1.37% wow. about a year ago oh to as high as 4.33, and here we are now at 3.5. Oh, come on over. All in All one right. year, from 1.4% to 4.1, call it, and now where we are. Uh, my next guest, though, despite all of the concerns about what the bond market is telling us, thinks there could be a lot of tailwinds for the market next year. Let's bring in Maria Shrin. She joins us as managing partner from Circle Wealth Management. Maria, it's good to have you, and you're saying, stop obsessing about the Fed, everybody. There's some other good things going on. What are those things? Well, we've had a number of things in the past week. We've had company CEOs talking about the landscape and talking about how it's stable. 
much with expectations and really thinking about how consumers are starting to spend a little bit less. And so the landscape is one of cost cutting, of supply chains normalizing, and at some point when the Fed starts to peak its rates of the dollar weakening. And all of those tailwinds for earnings are not appreciated yet by the market. I take your point. I mean, Dom, the weaker dollar, normalized supply chain, we'll, we'll take it. I don't know if cost cutting is such a good thing, so to speak, but certainly we probably haven't talked enough about a weak dollar trend underpinning stocks, supply chain normalization. We've actually heard some positive commentary from, uh, throughout earnings season from sure. companies saying, finally, we're not facing as high shipping costs. And it's not just that. I, I think everything in markets is relative, right? So if you look at the, the relative weakening of the dollar from where it has been, it's still very strong on a relative basis compared to what it was about a year or so ago. And the U.S. does represent still probably one of the better economies in the world sure. scale. So the, the dollar will still have some relative strength in that whole trade. But if you take a look at the way things are playing out right now, a, a huge part of that growth story will be hinged towards China. If China's zero COVID policies really do continue on a possible track of easing, and they are able to remember, China has been a big exporter of deflationary pressures over the course of the last several years and decades. If it can somehow manage to get some of those issues sorted out, that ties into supply chains, that could have a real carry through effect on that front. But I think a lot of folks out there are trying to curious right now as to whether or not there is a slower growth dynamic just developing overall longer term. Yeah. And so that that's the reason why you are seeing at least a little bit of that pullback in yields, the bid up in prices for the longer end of that Treasury spectrum. What would you say about that, Maria, and, and to investors who are kind of trying to figure out whether there's anything that can help give earnings more of a boost next year? Yeah, we, we agree with everything that you've said and actually think that we have to assume that rates are going to go higher and stay higher for longer. And valuations are therefore at this point priced for perfection. And it's part of the reason that the markets have been a little bit nervous about what earnings will look like for next year. But that having been said, we feel that a soft landing is most likely the scenario that we'll end up with, not a deep contraction. So we continue to think that equities will be volatile, but that there is room for upside sometime in the next year. Well, before we debate the soft landing again, Dom, let's find one area of agreement here that Maria echoes from our theme this week. And guess what asset class? Short-term fixed income. <laughs> right? We just, we, 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 so I, I'm telling How you, much more, have we talked about There this? are so many investors <laughs> that I've spoken to in, in the last couple of months here who have said, why, I can just park money in two-year treasuries yielding 4.5%, yep. and I'm good with that for right now. And by the way, I, I said on yesterday's show, and, and this is the funny part, about how high-yield savings accounts, liquid cash, yeah. closer to 2 and 2.5%. Two and I was corrected on Twitter. They're <laughs> like, check again, Dom. It, it turns out you're talking about high-yield savings accounts of 3 to 3.5% three right now. Liquid cash, for don't need to trade no securities, risk. with no risk yeah. what's FDIC insured products. Wow. So this is a huge deal for the markets. Wow. Maria, what would you say to that? We'll give you the last word here. Totally agree. We like treasuries and have liked corporate bonds of short duration inside of two to three years. And actually also looking at bank preferred stocks, which have floating coupons where you can get about 7% hmm. and have all dates of two years. So we've really liked the short end of the curve and agree that that's a great place to park cash. Well, we, we need a name for this called like getting wonky, but it's worth it. I like it. Wonky, but worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> Maria Shrin, thank you very much. Dom, thank always a pleasure. Me. Dom Chu. Still ahead, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried says he will testify in front of the House Financial Services Committee next week. He shared this news in a series of tweets earlier today that his lawyers may not be loving. We have the very latest ahead. Welcome back. A new development in the FTX saga with Sam Bankman-Fried tweeting that he's willing to testify in front of the House Financial Services Committee next Tuesday when they examine the collapse of his company. Kate Rooney is here with the very latest. What a tweet storm, Kate. Indeed, Kelly. A lot going on here. And this will be the first time we hear from the former FTX CEO. And it'll be under oath. Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, has been on a bit of a media blitz recently, giving hours of interviews and hasn't been holding back. On Twitter, as we saw this morning, Bankman-Fried saying in a tweet responding to Maxine Waters, quote, I still don't have access to much of my data, so there's a limit to what I will be willing to say, and I won't be as helpful as I'd like, but as the committee still thinks it would be useful, I am willing to testify. CEO of FTX at this point, John Ray, is on the witness list already. The Senate has uh, also got a hearing set for Wednesday. Senate Banking Chairman Sherrod Brown telling NBC that he is still thinking of using a subpoena to get Sam Bankman-Fried to testify. We still don't know if Bankman-Fried will appear in person on Capitol Hill or from the Bahamas, where he's been since this bankruptcy started. I've been talking to legal experts, though, who say he will likely testify remotely because of the possibility of an arrest. Others say the DOJ still needs some time to build a case here and collect proper evidence, wouldn't want to rush into making an arrest, they're telling me. No surprise, though, that Congress has taken an active interest and role here. FTX has impacted more than a million creditors, has more than 130 affiliated entities involved here, and is now one of the biggest corporate bankruptcies in history. Kelly. Okay, so what are the legal experts <laughs> saying about his strategy here, especially now that he appears to be taking this into this uh, high-stakes meeting next week. Every legal expert, defense attorney, white collar attorney has said, why? Why is he testifying? Our advice would be plea the fifth. He does not have to testify. He does not have to speak here. They're saying the likelihood is that he's using this as sort of a strategy to try to paint public opinion here. And the thought is on one side, if he thinks he didn't do anything wrong and he's just trying to prove that it was negligence and he wasn't aware of what was going on, it wasn't intent to fraud, to defraud investors, He's trying to make that play and out in front of Congress. But the, the question is, he's now under oath. It's different than doing media interviews. A lot of them are wondering why he's doing this. And the potential for an arrest as well wow. is a big thing people are watching. Although the big one topic, too, is just the excitement around it. I think there will be a lot of political theater. Lawmakers, he had spent a ton of time on Capitol Hill with sort of the poster child of consumer protection. A lot of lawmakers now want to take their own shots and get answers from Sam Bankman-Fried. Oh, sure. And we'll see how forthcoming he is yeah. uh, and is able to be, but um, we can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a week. It, well, We know that whatever happens there will be having moment-by-moment implications for uh, the amount of time he could be spending in yep. prison, future re regulation of crypto, the value of Bitcoin, yeah. and all the and rest And potential of perjury at this point. Yeah, it's different exactly. than a media interview. Exactly. Yeah. Kate, thank you for now, our Kate Rooney. Still ahead, call it the ultimate liquid asset, our series on alternative investments continues. Robert Frank is over at the wall with some very expensive spirits. Robert? bottle of Yamazaki was aged for 55 years, could sell for up to a half a million dollars at Sotheby's. We're going to take a look at the whiskey boom, what's driving prices, and how you too can invest. Coming up after the break.
Welcome back to The Exchange. If you're looking to make your portfolio more liquid, how about adding some wine or whiskey to it? The latter being the top performing collectible asset class over the past decade. So what kind of returns are we exactly talking about? Robert Frank is here with his latest installment of his alternative investment series, along with Jamie Ritchie, Sotheby's worldwide chairman of wines and spirits. Welcome to you both. Wait till we tell people how much this stuff is all worth. Robert, let's kick things off. Yeah, so Jamie, you know, you and I have watched this whole whiskey craze really emerge over the past 10 years. What's driving it? Who are the buyers? Are they younger buyers? Are they in the U.S.? Is it really Asia? What's really driving this? So, I mean, there has been tremendous demand, particularly from uh, since 2019. And uh, the demand originally for Scotch and Japanese whiskey has been driven by Asian buyers. Uh, the American buyers are certainly getting into it and we're developing a secondary marketplace here. Younger buyers are certainly getting engaged in it. So 49% of our, of our uh, buyers are new to the, to the auction process for us. And uh, over 40% of them are younger than 40 and just to answer Kelly's question, so we have a bottle of Yamazaki 55. It's aged 55 years. That bottle is coming up for auction at Sotheby's tomorrow, right? Tomorrow. This S- one's sitting right here, literally right this there. bottle. That, exactly. Within reach, within drinking reach, uh, of between three dollars and $500,000. The most expensive bottle Sotheby's has ever sold is also the world record holder at $1.9 That was for Macallan. Do you think we will ever see that $1.9 record being broken? How high can this go? Sure. I mean, records are always there to be broken. That, uh, that record was set in 2019 for uh, Macallan 1926, six-year-old. Uh, this, is, yeah, this is the most expensive bottle of Japanese whiskey. It's the oldest uh, Yamazaki, 55 years old. This literal bottle is the oldest one. I, I'm, I am so afraid to be sitting next <laughs> to this. This is a half a million dollar bottle, the oldest one that exists of this kind. Yes. Yeah, so, so we sold that for 600000 Wow. Before. So... Uh, and obviously the auction's tomorrow, so we'll see what it sells for. The low estimate is 350000 The high estimate is 500000 But, Jamie, how does it taste? <laughs> <laughs> Can we find out? So, so, I mean, well, so why do people... Have you ever wh- tried it? I have never tried this bottle. But why do people um, want to buy these whiskeys? Because they are rare, uh, but they have extraordinarily high quality. And age produces a lot of that. And the flavors, um, uh, uh, the, the length. The complexity is what people are looking for. But somebody who's spending a half million or more on that bottle, they're not going to drink it, right? That's an oh, investment. Oh, I wouldn't know about that. I mean, I th- certainly, I, I would think a number of those bottles are going to be consumed. So there was a second release of 100. There was an initial release of 100, second release of 100. So it's not like the only one of one. Okay. So I would think a number of these bottles will be enjoyed. I mean, in order for us to call this an investment, Robert, we can't be consuming them, correct? I mean, the whole idea is you of investing. You want to park your cash in something and have it accrue value over time. Right. I, th- I think of these things as decaying assets. You know, I, I guess that, that certain of them mature and are better over the years, but can you talk about the returns and whether these actually could, you know, be on par with stocks and bonds and maybe this year people go, you know, I'd rather, at least if I try this, I can drink it if it blows up, yeah. unlike the stocks and bonds they've had. The reason we're doing whiskey today is that if you look at over the past 10 years, the number one collectible investment by performance is whiskey up 402% over the past two years. Wine's done well, especially this year, up 17%, which when you compare it to stocks is a pretty good return. And Jamie, I guess that leads to the question of there are more and more ways that people can invest, not just to buy a bottle that you maybe drink and then it disappears, but you can buy casks now. You can hold them in bond and they appreciate in value. You can buy all these whiskey funds that have actually done fairly well. Is, Is that a good area for people to invest in or do you think it's safer to just buy a bottle, you know what it is and you store it away? 
So uh, I think having some knowledge and interest around the subject, whether it's whiskey or wine, is important because you want to understand what creates the value, why it is valuable, and what, um, what you need to know about the storage. There are obviously hidden costs in it. You need to store a cost. You exactly. need to make sure it's available to you and someone is not pretending it's theirs. So there are different elements. So you need trustworthy intermediaries. You need also to make sure that it is actually there, it is being stored, and it is of a, a quality level, yeah? So if you're buying a cask, yeah, there's price, there, there's the gauge, there's the alcohol content, but you've also got to make sure what the quality level is in the cask. Last question, wine, which is a big area for Sotheby's. You guys are going to have a record year this year, probably over $150 million in sales. But Asia is a problem, right, in the wine market. How do you see that going forward? Well, Asia's been a positive for us because since 2009, Asia has bought between 60 and 67% of what we sell. But they're slowing, right? So we have seen a slowdown in, in really mainland China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, um, but there still be around 50% of our sales. So wow. it, it's a relative slowdown. Yeah, they, they've, they've bought and consumed an awful lot of wine. Uh, I think they will still be the most important buyer going forward. We've seen great resilience in Europe and the UK, uh, and we've seen growth and demand in the US. Amazing. And I'm astonished that in a year in which we've seen the Fed pull way back on liquidity, asset classes of all kind get popped, and yet you're talking about um, the numbers that you are. Sure. Uh, we'll, we'll have a record year this year, which is fantastic. Wow. Jamie, thank you for joining us today. Jamie Ritchie and our Robert Frank. And please, someone take these away carefully <laughs> before I knock it off the table and destroy the legacy and half a million dollars worth of, the, of uh, these beautiful spirits and wine that you so kindly brought. Thank you. Still ahead, as cracks begin to show in the REIT market, one major developer is making a big bet that a rebound is ahead. We will tell you where right after this. Welcome back. The news of redemption limits being triggered at two big private REITs at Blackstone and Starwood has investors even more worried than they already were about the commercial real estate sector. But are there also now some new opportunities? Diana Olick joins us with more. Diana? Well, Kelly, Blackstone said the redemptions had nothing to do with the performance of the REITs, but the markets, as you said, are spooked regardless. On the public side, REIT stocks overall have been slammed in this rising rate environment, down about 23% year-to-date. And apartment REITs, and of course B-REIT and S-REIT are heavy into apartments, are down over 30%. The big issue is what rising rates are doing to commercial real estate investing and development. We spoke with the CEO of Bazuto Group, a mid-Atlantic apartment developer and landlord. Today feels a lot like uh, 2000, end of 2008, early 2009, where there was a significant decrease in capital being deployed. And, and when there is no liquidity in the marketplace, developers, REITs, et cetera, have a very, very hard time transacting, even if the underlying fundamentals are very positive. Commercial real estate investments overall were down 24% in Q3 year over year. Multifamily's fundamentals, though, are still considered strong, and that's why Bazudo is making a big bet on it now. There's a generational opportunity to develop a pipeline or to aggregate a pipeline and also to acquire new apartment assets at, at candidly higher cap rates than they had been, um, so better values. Now, Bazzuto said he's raised $400 million in private capital to both build and acquire more apartments because he says the market is sorely undersupplied. Kelly? That's fascinating. Uh, coming in at a time when others are leaving quickly. Diana, thank you very much. Sure. Diana Olick.
Now from real estate deals to the latest on the Microsoft Activision one. And what needs to happen for that to actually get done? It's coming up in Power Lunch, which begins right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx. 